Beera Podcast. Research matters. The Beera Public Engagement and Impact Award recognizes and celebrates the impact of research and practice in the education community and how both have demonstrably engaged the public. In this episode, you will hear the 2019 recipient speak about their prize-winning research. Hello and welcome. I'm George Leckie, a Professor of Social Statistics at the School of Education, University of Bristol. So I'm here to talk to you today about my research into Progress 8, uh, the school performance measure used to hold all secondary schools to account in England. And in particular, I'm going to focus on critiquing it with respect to whether it should or should not adjust according to pupil background characteristics. And I've been delighted to be invited to give this talk. And it's really because I was fortunate enough to receive the Beera Impact Prize for this research, which is published in, in the journal Burge. Uh, and it was joint work with Harvey Goldstein, uh, who, who very sadly passed away in uh, March this year, aged 80. And so it's sad really to be doing this uh, podcast uh, solo, because of course I would have done it jointly uh, with Harvey, which would have been a great fun. So he's clearly sorely uh, missed. So in terms of our research here, let me tell you um, a little bit um, about it now. So as I said, Progress 8 is the headline performance measure for all secondary schools in England. Um, what it does is it compares schools' uh, GCSE results, their attainment eight scores, but it statistically adjusts for the fact that kids start their secondary schooling with different prior attainment, key stage two scores essentially at the end of um, primary schooling start of secondary schooling. Now, this is called a value-added model, and it's considered a fairer way to compare schools because it adjusts for the very different circumstances within which schools teach and operate, and so it leads to more meaningful comparisons. The issue is that in the academic literature, and indeed the government itself previously, both of these would do one step further, which is to additionally adjust for pupil demographic and characteristics and socioeconomic status. These factors predict GCSE performance over and above Key Stage 2 scores, and crucially, they vary dramatically across schools. And so if you ignore those factors, the argument is that you are placing schools which teach economically challenging intakes at a disadvantage from day one versus those schools which have more advantaged intakes. And so the comparisons, whilst improved from simply comparing schools' average exam results, uh, because we do have that all-important adjustment for Key Stage 2 scores, are nonetheless still crude, they're still potentially misleading, they're still effectively biased against schools teaching challenging intakes. So that is, that is the academic argument that the Progress 8 should be doing more. Now, the government will come on to their reason shortly, argue against this. Uh, and so our research really looked into these two arguments, debated them, but also crucially reanalyzed the, the data and looked to see, well, what would happen to Progress 8 were the government to adjust for these demographics and socioeconomic status characteristics of kids? Um, and we see quite dramatic um, results. So, um, the first thing to note is that Progress 8 already gives you very different results from Attainment 8. So Attainment 8 is the average exam performance of each school, where this is based on eight subjects that the kids are taking at GCSE, very prescriptive, English and maths double counted, certainly a strong EBAC influence in there um, as well. Uh, so Progress 8 um, already changes the rank order of schools dramatically. The correlation is only around 0.75 comparing Progress 8 and Attainment 8. 
So already that's a major move. And that's something to actually commend the government on. It's taken a long time, but eventually the government have shifted to this value-added approach over and above simply comparing, for example, 5A stars to C. So that, that is a positive. Uh, but nonetheless, we would argue that the government could do more in terms of contextualizing school circumstances with respect to SES and so on. Uh, and one way to kind of very clearly see this is that we can look nationally and we can look at the average progress eight score of, for example, free school meal kids versus non-free school meal kids. And we see dramatic differences which show that nationally poorer kids make less progress than uh, more affluent kids. Okay, uh, And it turns out there's a differential of uh, 0.43 grades at GCSE per subject whereby um, a more affluent kid and a poorer kid starting with the same key stage two performance nonetheless performed differently at GCSE with the poorer free school meal kid scoring on average 0.43 grades uh, behind the more affluent child. And that's a dramatic difference. And we can cycle through really different characteristics of children uh, and see the same kinds of patterns. So uh, kids in the most deprived neighborhoods make substantially less progress nationally than kids in the most affluent um, neighborhoods. Uh, we see strong differences by ethnic group. Uh, white British, although they're the majority group for the country as a whole, they make slightly negative progress, which means that they score lower on average than what you'd predict based only on their key stage two scores, because other ethnic groups, minority ones, are on average scoring higher than what you'd predict by their key stage two scores alone. So groups like Chinese in particular, but also uh, Indian, Bangladeshi, Black African, Pakistani, all of these groups are high progress eight groups. Okay, They, they do much better than what you would predict based only on prior attainment. Uh, and so ethnicity is an important characteristic to take into account because it's, of course, um, whilst those are national trends I'm describing, it varies dramatically across uh, the country and across schools. And so you're making kind of not very meaningful comparisons when you compare um, a school in one area, which has particular ethnic mix, which differs substantially from a school in another area with different ethnic mix. One of the reasons for the difference progress eight scores of those two schools is simply the ethnic mix. And then, of course, we have the other characteristics which we're mentioning here, free school meal, neighbor deprivation, all these things vary across schools. As you'd expect, um, big differences by special educational needs. Um, so if you're a school and you've got a higher rate of SEN kids than the national average, this puts you at a disadvantage for progress eight because it's a factor which is ignored by the performance measure. Uh, what about the language of the kids? So it turns out, interestingly, the kids who speak English as an additional language are actually a rather rapid progress group. They improve or learn a lot during secondary schooling, do better than what you predict by their prior attainment alone. And so if you're a school and you've got a high proportion of these kids, that's stacked in your favour. So all these characteristics can be stacked for or against a school when they're being ignored. Uh, far better, perhaps, to statistically adjust for these factors to try and make more meaningful, fairer comparisons across schools. Uh, and, you know, the academic argument goes a bit further. You know, if you ignore these characteristics, you're effectively unfairly rewarding schools with affluent intakes, penalising schools with disadvantage intakes. That will in turn incentivise schools to avoid admitting particular people groups, might incentivise teachers not to work in certain schools where the accountability system is stacked against them from day one. 
Now, it's very important to give the counter argument here. What is the argument of the government? Well, they make an argument here, which is that if we start statistically adjusting for the fact that nationally free school meal kids make less progress than their more affluent peers, it's tantamount to accepting this. And they worry that this will in turn entrench low aspirations. And I think they go as far as to say it's kind of morally wrong that a poorer child should do worse at GCSE than a richer child when they start out at the same prior attainment. And because progress ain't adjusts for prior attainment, uh, the differences in progress that we see by those two groups is what they're referring to um, there. So there are arguments for and, and against clearly here. And it kind of comes down to what we argue in the paper, which is whether to what extent you view um, these social trends or these national trends that I've been talking about where by different groups make different progress, whether you view those as being due to the school and therefore the school should be held accountable for those national trends or whether they are not due to the school and due to society more generally. And clearly it's a mix, right? We, we see these dramatic um, social and demographic patterns in the attainment data and the progress data and there's a complicated uh, mix of factors which bring that about and it makes doesn't make sense to pin it 100% on schools which is what progress 8 does but perhaps it doesn't make sense to 0% uh, pin it on schools and just say it's all beyond the control of the schools. Schools do play a role as well. So in some senses we're talking about two extremes either you don't adjust for any of these factors which is the government's argument and you pin it all on the school that doesn't seem fair um, or you do adjust for them and schools aren't held responsible at all, which doesn't necessarily seem fair either. But nonetheless, I think it's useful to consider this, this, this alternative where we do fully adjust for everything. And it's very healthy to present both sets of statistics, to interpret both sets of statistics, contrast them and particularly have a good dialogue where they give quite different results. And it turns out that our research shows that they do give quite different results. Okay, so the correlation between the government's Progress 8 scores and what we term adjusted Progress 8 scores, which is just using their methodology, but statistically adjusting for demographics and socioeconomic status, this is a correlation of 0.91. Now that sounds very high, but nonetheless, it's sufficiently low to see a lot of schools moving quite dramatically in the national league table. What we see is that over one fifth of schools would move up or down the national table by 500 or more places. And this is substantial because there's only 3000 secondary schools nationally. So the fifth of schools are moving over 500 places. That is dramatic for them and has real consequences because we have such a high stakes accountability system. Not only that, but we see dramatic differences by um, area. So regions which would look more effective in terms of their teaching and their instruction, if we were to shift to this adjusted progress eight measure, would include in particular regions in the north. Why? Well, they have disproportionately high numbers of free school meal kids and white British kids, two groups who nationally uh, underperform on progress eight. So if you have a concentration on them in your particular area, then your area will look more favorable after they've been statistically adjusted away. London, on the other hand, drops back. London benefits from having particular ethnic mix and English as an additional language kids who are nationally um, good characteristics to have, if you like, and because London has a high proportion of those um, and they get statistically adjusted, it looks less good after. Uh, different school types, so as you might expect, grammar schools look less impressive after adjustment. Why? Because they're benefiting from uh, having few free school meal kids principally. 
other schools, uh, Converser Academies, um, worse and sponsor academies look better after adjustment. And this reflects a very different free school meal rates in those two school types. Converter Academies, just one in five kids are on FSM. Uh, sponsored Academies, two in five. And because sponsored academies have more FSM kids than the national average, they look relatively more effective once you adjust that factor out. So um, we've also had a lot of dissemination of this research via the media. We've done a lot of uh, work with the Northern Powerhouse Partnership and the Co-op Academies Trust trying to get that research out. Out there, we've got a, a website, if you Google it, for a Northern Powerhouse Partnership and Fair Schools Index, which allows anyone to look up their school and to see how they, their performance would change if you shifted from progress rate to adjusted progress rate. Lucy Powell, MP for, for Manchester and on the Education Select Committee wrote a nice kind of introduction to this report so people can look at that. And that's essentially it. That's, that's our research. So what we've done is to look at progress state, to revisit the arguments for and against um, adjustment for socioeconomic status and, and demographic characteristics. We've tried to portray both arguments. And we've illustrated how progress rate would change were the government to shift to adjusting for these factors. We've argued really that they represent two extremes uh, and really perhaps what's best is to present them both side by side and to, this would lead to a richer discussion for why schools results come out the way they do. However, I do want to end on a word of caution, which is that really in, in, in some ways, what we're focused on here is a kind of rather narrow point, and many have much greater concerns uh, about the nature of school performance tables and testing and league tables in this country. And it's not simply a case that patching up progress eight by adjusting for socio-demographics will make everything rosy. Really, I think many of us are, are concerned that there's more general problems with just how high stakes uh, school accountability is, just how data-driven it is. There appears to be a little bit of pulling away from that. Floor standards have gone. Ofsted claim to rely less explicitly on the performance table data. But nonetheless, people, a lot of people would still be very concerned. And so really, I think a kind of a, we certainly do need a national conversation for looking at much more general alternatives to the way that accountability is done. But that was beyond the scope of the work discussed here. So. All that leaves me to say is, well, first of all, um, thank you very much to, to, be, to be invited to give this podcast. I hope people have found it interesting. Um, you can Google me and, and, and this research to, to look at the journal article. Um, we've got a video on the web. I mentioned the Northern Powers Partnership webpage. All of these things can be found very easily um, if you Google them. And of course, feel free um, to, to, to email me um, if you want to discuss more. My email address is uh, g.com. Lecky, L-E-C-K-I-E, at bristol.ac.uk. So thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Bureau Podcast. Do you know someone whose research deserves recognition? The 2020 Public Engagement and Impact Award is now open for applications. Visit www.bureau.ac.uk forward slash awards.